listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. ever seen the film Thelma and Louise. It's one of my one of my favorites. Um, one of the one of the best endings in cinematic history as far as I'm concerned. Where uh, Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis they, they hold up their hands, they hold each other's hands, and they drive their car off the cliff. I remember thinking, that's a spoiler, if you haven't seen it, that just, <laughs> the whole film is ruined now, but uh, I was taken with, um, with that metaphor as I was listening to uh, two opposing sides discuss the fiscal cliff. And I get thinking that, do we really have to go there? Do we, is this really... Uh, is this wise? <laughs> um, and as as many of you know, my politics tend to go, you know, little left of center. Certainly more center now that I've uh, I have kids. It's funny how that works. Um, but I have always been really, really taken with how we can surround ourselves um, with arguments. And position ourselves with, here's where I stand. This is what I believe. I'm not budging. I'm, and, and there's enough for this to go around regardless of party. Okay? This is how we function as human beings. We function as human beings making choices, taking stands. Indeed, oftentimes we will come into situations like this where we will look for some type of understanding. So that there is something, some degree of certitude with which we can hang on to as we leave. And I would propose that this is precisely what will get in the way of any type of realization. The clinging, either to what I say or what somebody else says or when we watch I'm reminded of this. I had this this teacher, and she she spoke so beautifully and eloquently of about this the quarrel. At um, I'm gonna miss I'm gonna miss it, but it's a it's a great uh, event. Uh, the Buddha the Buddha was was in this community, and even though the Buddha, you know, the enlightened one, as the legend goes, was in this particular community, Kasimbi, I think it's Kasimbi. The quarrel at Kasimbi is what she called it. This was years and years and years ago, and she was talking about how in community there are certain ways that you're going to want to behave, otherwise you're going to get into trouble. And so this quarrel at Kasimbi, the monks were teamed up, pitted against each other, one against the one one side against the other. And the Buddha came in and you know kind of gave the smackdown. You guys, this isn't going to work, and here's why. And he kind of you know said, you know, in this uh, you know, he basically said, right speech, 
the way we communicate with each other, the way we behave in community, the way bodily we care for one another, the way verbally we exchange with one another, the way we deal with each other mentally. You think differently than I do. Your opinions are... You know, this whole thing creates a sympathetic concordance in community. And how is it that we can do that? Um, I don't pretend to know. I don't have any answers. But I think it's very healthy for us to ask these questions. Where is it, and this is where I think the real value of the teaching is, where is it within us where there is non-concordance? Where do we feel in life like there is a miss? Where relationally do we struggle? Maybe it's with a person. Maybe it's more likely with a group. Okay, um, The us versus them begins to take shape. The me versus him or me versus her, whatever, you know, those verses, the oppositional forces of being begin to kind of spring forth and we find ourselves at variance with the very thing we're looking to kind of embrace as humans. Instead of becoming more open, instead of unfolding and evolving, we tend to begin to hunker down. I mean, and even the words I use there actually kind of work because the hunkering down move um, is precisely what keeps us in a place of closure. To hunker down, what are we doing? We're trying to keep the winds of change from affecting us. We're trying to stave off any and all types of things that might push us a little here or push us a little there. Ultimately, when we look at this quarrel at Kasimbi, I remember taking the. I was. I was. Uh, this probably would have been in about nineteen, what, ninety-two or ninety-three. It was a few years back, and I remember listening to this story and thinking to myself, you know, we all could use a little bit of that recognition that it's never really my way or the highway that I am not smart enough either to be 100% right or 100% wrong. And if I'm not smart enough to be 100% right or 100% wrong, nobody else is either. That everybody, everybody has some truth to what it is that they're offering. Our work then is to figure out how we're going to do this dance of life. So, with this in mind, I'm just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the quarreling, the quarreling monks at Kasimbi. I think it's Kasimbi. My brain. Uh, I remember the the idea that that translated later on as I lived in a, a community very much. <laughs> I mean, I, I've said this before, but if you think that uh, living in a, a Buddhist community is free from any and all clinging and attachment, guess again, okay? There is just as much in the monastery as there is outside of it. It's just more intense inside the monastery, all right? Doesn't mean I don't recommend it. I do. I think it's fantastic. It's an amazing teaching. But 
within community, within relationship in general, paying very, very, very close attention to how it is that we choose to spend our time, what kinds of words we use, what kinds of thought we give energy to, how we take care of our and others' bodies. Do we respect space? Are we honest? Are we honest with ourselves? Are we honest with others? These types of things actually can create a deep balance. These types of questions can set us up for a balanced way of moving through the world. And while this intro talk right now might have been more appropriately placed just prior to uh, the election, um, I'm taken with uh, the kind of vitriol that I can still hear uh, uh, as I'm flipping radio stations, as I'm flipping TV stations and so forth. Uh, So unnecessary, so much of the time to get caught by what someone else is saying. With this in mind, I had a very, very smart friend of mine who was uh, uh, talking about how he has struggled so much with particular TV personalities and radio personalities. And uh, his point was, I then realized that's their role. Their role is to tweak our unconsciousness. What a gift. If you're not having people tweak your unconsciousness, you most likely will roll into a space of smugness. Spiritual smugness. There's nothing more annoying. (laughs) So, I'm saying this kind of to encourage. Encourage a participation in your life. Encourage, I'm trying to encourage a participation in the way you go about hearing, uh, the way you go about speaking, the way you go about seeing, the way you go about feeling, all your senses. As you approach your day-to-day, as the radio blares, or as the television station espouses, whatever it is, can you find balance? Can you recognize when someone's tweaking you and just take a breath there? Doing this allows for you and everybody else you're around to really kind of open to a deeper consciousness. That doesn't always feel good at first, becoming more conscious, because you become more aware of where you're getting tweaked and how it's happening and how it's unfolding. But I would say this is precisely what the Buddha taught. And in dealing with monks who were quarreling, okay, or communities, or by extension nations, that are quarreling, or families, we can begin to kind of take a step back a little bit. Recognize every, every poke, every chide, every tweak of the things in us that start to flare. Those are immediately opportunities that we can explore. Seriously, though, this is kind of a neat, this is a neat way to kind of approach, perhaps, as we enter into... Uh, the, th- the thickening stories of holidays and the people that were around. This can be really, really a neat way to kind of let life in. Do that dance. So with this in mind, as we sit tonight, 
I'm wondering if it's possible, just uh, just possible, to really stop. If we use this opportunity to, instead of taking a position, we let the position take us. And that position is one that's seated, where we are still, where we're open, where we're available. We're utterly available to whatever happens with a kind of conscious grace. Know that there are people here who are here to support you. It's a very special kind of love when you may not know the person sitting to your left or to your right, but you know that they're here for you and themselves in an effort to become more conscious. That's what a Sangha is. And that's the way concordance unfolds. When we start recognizing this superordinate goal of, let's wake up. It can't happen alone. It happens when we're together in situations just like this. And this tradition that we are engaging in right now, where people come, they gather, they meditate, then they discuss. has been going on for a couple thousand years and it works okay trust it trust it I can recall a conversation I had uh, some years back with a, uh, a student who asked me you know I'm so, you know, they, they came out with this, you know, declaration. I'm so interested in this. I'm so interested. Oh, you know. And the question then was, so, so how, do I, how do I prevent, you know, awakening or enlightenment or uh, opening or whatever you want to call it? How do I prevent that from happening? And I said, by being really interested in it. And I was like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? And, and I was so taken with this, this, um, uh, this, this moment for this particular, this particular person because they were, they were just, uh, they, you could almost see like this, this, the shoulder slump thing. Oh, really? What do you mean? And the reason why this works the reason why um, uh, kind of opening to the absolute can can unfold in any of us with any kind of stabilized uh, uh, resonance is that we take the mind out of it. We take the fascination that we have with uh, the particular path or our particular experience. We take that out of it. I remember hearing um, it described by another teacher as, as if you, you know, you're, you're, you're letting the, the water out of the tub. It's happening naturally. You just let the water out of the tub and you get so interested that you just cork the tub and you're like, hey, how come it's not draining anymore? It's that interest we have, the obsessive kind of nature we have that can really get in the way of any type of deep spiritual unfolding. It's a very natural process that happens 
when we begin to quiet down, sit still consistently, and that we have kind of a group that helps provide this beautiful container, and we have a teaching that is grounded in some type of in my view, valid tradition. And why do I, that brings up all sorts of things. Well, what exactly is valid? Well, there are all sorts of traditions that I think um, uh, can get in the way of awakening happening, not because they're invalid traditions, but because they tend to support the very kind of passionate interest we might have that keeps the draining from happening out of the tub. So, for instance, if there's any type of tradition that puts us, for example, in a time-bound situation, I'll give you an example. Scariest thing to me, which generates all sorts of kind of bizarre fundamentalist approaches towards towards uh, uh, existence, is whenever we have a future salvation awaiting for us based on present activity. If you do this, then in the future. What do we do? We put our spirituality and we tie it to time. And this takes us out of the present. And if it takes us out of the present, we can't offer any gift. Okay? So that would, in my view, and just the definition that I'm using here, be something that is not so, it's not a valid approach or an authentic uh, approach. If it's something that punishes us for past events, if it is our karma to live this life, for instance, we can absolutely be just just taken out of this opportunity to awaken to this truth that kind of exists beyond name and form. It's beyond anything we can really speak of, but it's something that can be realized. So how do we go about doing this? What is it that really gets in our way? I'm going to go through relatively quickly just some things that can kind of prevent this. I've touched on this a great deal before, but it seemed appropriate based on some of the conversations I've had this last week. It doesn't hurt to kind of repeat some of the things that can, you know, keep keep us small, so to speak, in this work. That can clog the tub as it's trying to drain, okay? So the first one is getting obsessive about your spirituality. It's the very first one. Are you obsessed about your spirituality? Do you, do you create an identity around your spirituality? Well, I'm a meditator. <laughs> yeah, I meditate. I'm a Buddhist. See my beads? You know, whatever. Get the idea. <laughs> I just built this shrine in my house. Check it out. You know. That's all fine. It's, it's fine to wear the beads. It's fine to have the shrine. It's fine to, but what people tend to do is they tend to cloak themselves in the stuff of spirituality. They create an identity around their practice, whatever it might be. Their conversations, and maybe you've had conversations with people who really, they want to tell you about what they're doing spiritually. Even when you haven't asked fine but it can also become an utter pain in the side we can become we can become really proud of our spiritual endeavors uh, our spiritual attainments and what happens all of this work becomes egoic the separate self sense begins to kind of take over i ego am a buddhist 
Well, good for you. That's excellent. Okay. What are you prior to being a Buddhist? What is prior to the I? That's exactly what the Buddha would ask. That could be really instructive. Okay, you say that to if you. Hey, you're Buddha? <laughs> that is so cool because I'm a Buddhist. So obsession with our, with our spiritual work, that's, that's a big, big blocker. That's, a, uh, that's, a, that's an impediment to, to the natural unfolding, if we can just sit still. The other one is clinging to experiences. Um, I ha- I've had actually two or three people who have had these amazing experiences in, um, in Sangha. And they, you know, come in and, and uh, tell me about them in Dokusan, or we have an email, or Skype, or, or a, a phone exchange, or something like that. And um, this is a really cool event. You have uh, some type of really, you know, big giant aha moment. This is wonderful. Um, and they invariably can't stand what I have to say about it because they're like, "So does that mean I'm enlightened?" I say, "Oh, absolutely not." Yeah. Actually, that experience is really beautiful. It's wonderful. Now, please let go of it. It's like, what are you talking about? Well, you guys, there are all sorts of really, really cool meditative techniques that if you're interested, you can read about. um, And they, they can kind of describe how you get to certain states, certain absorptions. We might call them in Buddhism. Here's how you do it. You're looking to kind of make this happen and this happen, and there you are, and you're very high. Or you have, uh, you know, kind of an out-of-body experience, or you have a tremendous amount of color that you see. It's like having a lot of acid or something without any acid or something, okay? There are ways of kind of coaching that through one psyche just through meditative awareness. It has nothing, nothing to do with awakening, those are just states that you're playing with. They're pointing you in a direction that's beyond the thing that wants more of those states. Any type of experience you have is born in time. It arises in the present moment, and because it's an experience, it eventually dies. It's born in time, it dies to time. Therefore, it's not anything that we can hang on to. So when we cling to experience, all we're doing is keeping the experience from pointing us in the appropriate direction. You will never find any Zen master who finds in Zen the big, the big aha, big bang is Satori or Kensho. And any Zen master worth her salt or his salt is going to say the same thing. Oh, great. Now, uh, please let go of that. That's just pointing you in the right direction. That's helping to drain the tub. If you get all obsessive about what just happened to you, you will put the stopper in the tub. So please don't do that. All right? So we don't cling... To, the, uh, to our spirituality itself. We don't cling to experience. We also, and this is a good one, um, that a lot of people, especially in this sangha, it's, it's one of the infinite smile uh, specific disease. Well, it's not specific to infinite smile, but it's a, it's a great disease uh, uh, that, that we see a great deal of. And it's, um, at least I feel, 
people who are like come into uh, into this practice and they're like, how do I speed this up? Is there any short shortcut? You know, and the answer, of course, is yes. There is a shortcut, and every single one of you knows exactly what that shortcut is. Shut up. Sit still. That's the shortcut. As much as ego hates hearing that, that is the shortcut. Because when we are quiet and mind is no longer chattering, thought is no longer something that we are either going after or avoiding. When that shut up happens internally and stillness happens to this very body, suddenly we are available to anything that arises, any type of experience that arises, and we're practiced in being still and being quiet so that the arising of an experience is automatically nothing that we grasp for. It's not something we go after. Does this make sense? So if we're not going after the experience, we're not grasping, what happens is it begins to infuse this body and this mind with exactly what it's trying to show us, which is surrender. Be here now, fully. And from that conscious space, noise can happen, thoughts can happen, activity can happen, but the qualities of it have shifted. As opposed to being movements towards something or away from something, it's movements continually in a direction towards generosity, towards opening, not for personal gain, but because it's a deep recognition, a concordance with what's beyond time, what's beyond mind. That may sound kind of heady. That may sound kind of weird, and I don't really follow it, whatever. But basically what we're looking at here is when we can surrender, when we can open, when we can shut up and sit still, we become accident-prone to the great accident of enlightenment. Another one, this is actually a really good one to be alive to, is... um, Where'd the magic go? This used to be really fun. Or this used I used to just really get a lot out of my meditations and now I don't. Or I used to get a lot out of Sangha, now I don't. Or I used to get a lot out of your talks, McAllister, now I don't. I used to get something this this is depressing, you know, this experience now. I'm not liking this point of the path. And the good news is this is utterly and completely normal. We do have as St. John of the Cross liked to say, a dark night of the soul as our practice begins to unfold. Usually there's this really interesting plateau that I've talked about before where people usually, when they start off, they get really interested and fascinated by the practice. They cling to their identity and their beads. And what happens is they kind of start walking up the mountain and everything. And then they start recognizing a couple of experiences. And they keep going up the mountain. It's just that this is going really, really well. And, oh, I see, speed it up by shutting up and sitting. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then, oh, this sucks. And it just keeps going and going and going. And years go by sometimes. And people are like, 
why am I doing this? What is there any benefit? Is there any benefit to me doing? I am no longer feeling good every time I come in. If, as long as that's the orientation, if if it really is about feeling good, this is the wrong kind of work. Go somewhere where salvation is promised in some capacity. Okay, that's going to be more helpful. And I am not sticking my finger in the eye of tradition by saying that. Please don't misinterpret. I actually think that traditions are going to be very valuable as the near future kind of progresses. They're going to be what helps enlightenment actually unfold more deeply. That's for another talk. But for right now, just consider that this work isn't designed to make you feel better. It's designed to make you feel more. It's not designed to bring happiness to you. It's designed to help you become more conscious. If you're more aware of your life, typically you're going to become more aware of those things you've been sweeping under the rug for years. You've just gotten to a point where you're tired of tripping over the rug. It's like, okay. So you lift it, you sweep it out, but then it's done. And that's really what meditation, what shutting up and sitting still really, really offers us a chance to do. It ain't so comfortable, just like therapy. Got a few therapists in this room. They know. Oftentimes you'll find that your, your, your patient will go through exactly the same thing. You know, they, they, they can't stop crying for the first few visits, and they feel like this tremendous relief, like they're really getting somewhere, and then they hit this, ugh. Okay, now that works hard. Exactly. If that's happening to you, or if it hasn't happened but you're worried about it, my advice is don't worry about it. It is utterly and completely natural. It is the way this unfolds. All you need to do to help the process along is keep going after the shortcut, which is to shut up and sit still. Keep doing that. Don't stop. The next area. This kind of relates to what I was talking about earlier, but thinking that all of this is karma. Oh, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And it's all fine. I don't have to do anything. This is what's supposed to happen. I'm supposed to be miserable. Therefore, it's okay. Or whatever. If, if you are looking at this experience that you're having as, as for instance, everything it is, is perfect as it should be, therefore, I don't need to do anything. Worse yet, I don't need to participate. We've bastardized the teaching to a point. We've distorted the teaching, perverted it enough to where we're not going to get much juice out of it. We're not really going to get much sustenance out of a practice if we just look at it. Oh, it's all karma. If we look at others' situations, we look at what's going on in the rest of the world, and go, oh, well, it's their karma. They clearly, in a past life, did something bad, so they end up being um, someone who is raised uh, in Syria. They, they're raised as a homosexual in Rwanda. They're, you get the idea? That, I think, really does a great deal to kind of toxify one's approach towards the teaching. This work is not passive. It's really about engagement. About what? 
engagement. It's about being engaged. It's about really looking at one's life, one's situation, calling it for what it is, and recognizing someone else's situation, calling it what it is, and being helpful. Not because it's going to bring you accolades, but because every single person on this planet is an extension of you. You, by extension, are them. So it is deeply participatory. I would lastly say the most dangerous thing of all is to assume that uh, it's okay because it's all just an illusion. It's, this is illusory, therefore. Everything is temporary, therefore it doesn't matter. That gets us into serious serious trouble and it has historically Buddhists are peaceful so they don't they don't run into they don't go wacko like fundamentalist you know other faiths do unless you're a kamikaze pilot those are Buddhist monks some of you may know that historically right they were the first ones that Tojo recruited Get the Buddhist monks, because they already know there's nothing to lose. It's all illusory. Boom. Got them. Okay? Or looking at the Om cult. What was it? 19, the sarin nerve gas attack on the Tokyo subway system. That was a Buddhist group. All right? It's all illusion. All right? You can find it in any faith. I'm picking on Buddhism right now so that we don't find that spiritual smugness creeping into the, the mix here. But these areas really kind of obfuscate, they block, if you will, how the teaching can unfold. They keep it from draining. They keep the clinging and addiction we have to ego from kind of dissipating of its, not, its own weight as we begin to lighten and become enlightened. So just consider... How much do you look at your spiritual identity as something that you want to cloak yourself with? I would argue that that cloak is actually preventing your light from shining. And it's preventing light from shining on you. I would say also that your attachment to any type of meditative experience or your craving for meditative experience or some type of blast, that craving actually is what gets in the way. I would also argue that looking to speed this process up is going to get in your way. All right? Be quiet. Be patient. Be still. I would also say that looking for magic is going to get you in trouble. Expect the non-magic stage to kind of happen. Please don't look at the, the suffering of the rest of the world as something that doesn't need to be addressed because it's all good. Okay? Nor should we look at everything as illusory. Or it just doesn't matter. We don't want to become an apathetic adept. We want to actually engage the world from a place of deep, deep, and ever-deepening consciousness. Doing so, we really help the world. We're no longer bound by anything other than uh, uh, the obvious boundary that culture can sometimes throw our way. 
And even then we can see into and through that. We know how to respond appropriately. We can engage, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. Questions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned uh, earlier that you become more conscious, you become more aware, and I've struggled with what's the difference between being conscious and being aware? What's the difference between being conscious and aware? I think probably in the way I was throwing it around, not much, but you want me to give you the technical? The way, the way I really like to look at it is, and what's been most helpful to me in my process is, Consciousness is our awareness of awareness. Okay? The consciousness is our awareness of awareness. Therefore, the root of consciousness is awareness. It's what's always prior. Awareness is always prior to everything that could arise. You are aware of ego. Therefore, the awareness of ego is not ego. And yet you are aware that's an amazing split. There's awareness, and I can see ego doing his little dance or doing her little dance, but this awareness is me too. What the hell is that? Well, that recognition right there is massive. Small self ego, big self awareness. So the the more and so and what happens is the minute we are aware of that awareness, we we're conscious. So consciousness is a slightly personalized version of awareness, which is expansive, vast. It's so funny. I was having this, this uh, discussion with a, uh, uh, this friend of mine who is, uh, sh- uh, she's getting a master's, uh, excuse me, getting a, getting a PhD. And the work she's doing is in sociology. And it was all about, she was reading some real heavyweights. Um, uh, uh, about this idea of, of, uh, of selfhood. Is there anything prior to the self? And, you know, throughout this is a pretty, com- well, it's a very competitive program and so forth. This group of uh, around 140 people who are going through this together said, well, there's nothing prior to that. And so then in this conversation I had, it said, well, what about the awareness? And she's like, God, I didn't even think about that. We spent a whole semester on this and nobody ever brought that up. I go, bring it up, see what happens. And evidently, it just threw the entire program of students into this upheaval at a recent uh, 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 forum that they were having. And uh, she, of course, thought this was the greatest thing in the world. That you know, um, but it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating issue if you kind of start playing playing this out. Awareness is prior to all, right? So the minute we can become more relaxed as the awareness that we always are, the more open and vast our experience can become. That is the path, Ross. That is the path. Nice one. <laughs> Sarah, it was Mark first? or I, I choose you. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. And this is a kind of a personal one and maybe a better, better for Dr. But I wanted to ask it. Is there ever a time when it's not the right time to meditate? Is there ever a time when it's not the right time to meditate? Yeah, it's really negative. Yeah. 
Is that basically what you're saying, though? Yeah. Is it ever not the right time to meditate? Yeah, because I want and I just think it's like I was on my way here, both good or bad, there's a time when it's not repeating myself. Is there ever a time when not the right time to meditate is yeah. the question? Yeah, like, or, or should I just, can I just be aware? Can I answer the question? Yes. <laughs> sorry. I love you. I love you. No, 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 no. No, no, it's actually not. This is, this is a great question. Okay, so you ready for the answer? Yeah. No. Yeah. It's always the right time to meditate. In fact, what we do, because what you're talking about here is when you see the disaster, we confuse and conflate processing with hiding. And this work is about not hiding in the face of all of it. No matter how disastrous or how beautiful, it's being present for all of it equally, letting the radiance of our presence shine on everything with equal amounts, just like the sun shines on each of us with equal amounts. Okay? It's never not the right time. I would actually argue that the more aware you are of your situation, the faster awakening unfolds within, through, and about you. Every disaster is an invitation into the house of God. Every success is the same thing. There's no variance. Yes, Mark? The term the map is not the territory. Can you give a real quick summary? The map is not the territory. I think it's Alfred Korzybski's, the guy who said it. And it's, it's really, especially in terms of spiritual practice, all I'm ever doing is giving you a map. It's not the, it's not the, you're the one who has to actually look at the map and, you know, hike the terrain. And so, so, and for me too, I mean, like, I'm just, I am giving you nothing original. This has all been said a million times before by a million different people, okay? So there's really nothing special being offered. I'm just pointing out the map, just like everybody else has been doing. And by extension, it's what you are doing now. Anytime any of you have any type of, you know, kind of sense of how this is, is uh, uh, helpful, and you suggest it usually in fairly quiet ways, you just embody kind of the work itself, you make a difference. And one of the things that's really cool is, is people, especially after they've been doing this a while, the way this practice begins to kind of unfold in us tends to be very, very insidious. It's a creep. It's, not, it's nothing that we notice until we haven't seen somebody for 10 years and in our discussion with them, they say, God, you've changed. And you're like, huh, really? Or we notice that, that someone who normally could tweak us can't or doesn't because what's happened? We've loosened a little bit. Our dance steps are a little bit more fluid because we've been studying and hiking the terrain. We've learned a great deal about our interior landscape, okay? And then we've kind of actually let it go into our exterior landscape. We carry it with us wherever we go. The exterior and the interior begin to lose that boundary, and as a result, our suffering diminishes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. 
Help me with your name once again. I forget. It was... Like Dennis the Menace. Like Dennis the Menace. <laughs> so thank you for bringing these things up because I've been studying awareness, watching awareness. Mm-hmm. It's called mm-hmm. the uh, most rapid and direct means to eternal bliss. Mm-hmm. Every paragraph is numbered. Right. It's a Hindu derivation mm-hmm. from Ramana Maharshi's mm-hmm. lead. And, uh, Bill, Ra- Ramana Maharshi, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. He's there. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I got it. So that guy's a, For those of you that don't know, Ramana Maharshi is just like the spiritual badass. I, really amazing guy. And if you're not familiar with him, look him up online. But I forgive Dennis the Menace. Yeah. He's enlightened. Mm. That's true. No, Maybe. He is. Well, that, don't cling to that, though. No. Otherwise, what happens to him? If you cling to the fact that you believe that he's enlightened, what happens? Exactly. And he, therefore, and his teaching have an incredible effect on minimizing your approach. Great. So, that was the second topic that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Do experiences cling to deities, deification? That's what Mary and Jesus and all that stuff is about. Yet they have so much to teach us. That's right. Mm hmm. Um, thanks for bringing these things up because I've been doing a lot of this no kidding and millions of layers like an onion of ego Mm -hmm. to go through lots of tricks by the imposter ego right and whoa falling into them but my question would be might be do we um, don't have to but is going through some of these part of the awakening experience to go through them Uh, Eckhart Tolle talks about we have to experience the ego. It seem, it appears that people have to experience the ego and go through the wanting more and the separation and those kind of the I, me, my, mine. Mm-hmm. And to go through that before, it's like a venture. I think of it like a venturi tube. Okay, here we got to go through the world and then we're going to go through this practice. And here's the difficult part. Wow, this is hard. Right. And poof, you pop out the other end and go, wow. This is oneness. Mm-hmm. So my question is, is going through these five elements that you mentioned, mm-hmm. I think that's what I counted, yep. that may be part of the process of growth of spiritual, well, that could be ego, but spiritual uh, improvement or, or moving forward on the path. Yep. Yes. And there's one more I would add. Okay, ready? Um Spiritual seduction or teacher seduction, glitz. Okay? Whenever we're in the presence of a charismatic, okay, like Ramana Maharshi, we can lose sight of what Ramana Maharshi is trying to point to. All right? So I would add that to the mix and I would say, yeah, definitely. If you don't go through ego, if you don't go through suffering, there's no way you could ever know what the end of suffering is. So there's no way you could under, uh, understand what the Buddha pointed to when he said enlightenment is the end of suffering. So, of course, we go through the... As a matter of fact, anybody who gets beyond the ego without ever feeling the ego is usually babbling to themselves on a street corner. They're psychotic. They're not awake. So going through structure... Okay, we spend our entire teen years building structure, right? 
All right, the idea of intimacy, the idea of alienation, all these contests that Eric Erickson might point out that we kind of go through utterly necessary because you the the view from that ladder if the rungs are broken at any point compromises the integrity of the ladder and there's no way you're getting to those higher levels with any kind of view there's no stability to the ladder so we build all this structure we go through all this egoic clinging until we get to the point where it's like this isn't working anymore i wonder what options are out there for me surrender exactly and so we, we surrender, and usually that surrender, uh, after a bit of depression or a bit of darkness or whatever, looks like typing in Google, you know, meditation groups in the East Bay, and then <laughs> infinite smile shows, and then we show up or something. I mean, it, I know that I'm not saying you, but I mean, that a lot of people, it kind of works that way, where it's like, okay, let's give this a try. Let's give this a try. Let's give this, a, let's give something else a try. But yeah, absolutely, we do go through it. We better. Otherwise, there's no real. I mean, we start to recognize. Without that, we would never recognize that enlightenment and delusion are precisely the same thing. And if that doesn't stop your mind, I don't know what will. <laughs> Love you guys. Thank you.